All right, everybody. Um, welcome to the pod. I'm here with John Vo Vocal. Is that how you pr uh, pronounce your last name? Vocal, just like the, Vocal. the throat muscle. Right <laughs> um, John is someone who I met, gosh, three, four years ago while I was touring. Um, the band I was in played a show in Det the Detroit area, and John was in one of the opening bands, and we kind of hit it off in the parking lot just talking about life and politics and, you know, all that good stuff. And here we are four years later. Um, John works in public policy and he's also in a great great band. What's the name of your band again? Blank Slate. Blank Slate, that's right. And his girlfriend's a killer bassist too. Um, she really is. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to have John on because him and I have, you know, we've, we've got some overlapping opinions that I guess you could say are, uh, kind of uh, strangely controversial these days just because everything is such a hot button topic um and john working you know working in public policy and economics i think has some really great insights to uh to share regarding you know markets and capitalism and all that really convoluted stuff that seems to have such a, a political uh you know it's so politicized these days so I just wanted to, yeah, have you on to talk about that and, um, yeah, just see where, see where, see where we go. Yeah. So, um, I will say, you know, uh, the, you and I started striking common ground, not mm -hmm. as, uh, as, uh, you know, a proponent of our political beliefs in general, but more so the idea that political discussion, discourse, things like that are kind of dying off. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, extending this into economics, I would make the claim that while economics does have political implications, mm -hmm. it is not an inherently political thing, right? right? So I was really shocked just as a, you know, like this summer, right? And mm -hmm. again, like I do this for a job. I do a lot of economic research. This is not necessarily stuff that I consider I'm like take, making edgy takes on or trying to get in fights with people with. Totally. And I was really upsetting people, um, you know, random people on the internet, of course, but getting like super offended about the idea that like, you know, I, I uh, believe in the general idea of a free market and that there's like no discussion like that. You know, I was literally called like, like, oh, um, you know, that's a hateful opinion because, you know, free markets create imperialism or, or kind of claims like that, right? So Absolutely. I think this is a great opportunity to talk about, one, the politicization of economics, and two, mm -hmm. how it's not inherently a right or left-wing thing and doesn't need to be right. viewed through that lens. Because, totally. you know, there, I, there's a lot of things that I can agree with on, on, you know, what would be considered leftist economics, but I don't view totally. them as leftists. I just think of them as economic. So. Or at least to come to a place where you can empathize with the other person's perspective. And, um, you know, I mean, so much of my understanding and really my interest in politics is this, basically this idea that politics is the, um, it's the space in which people have to compromise for the common good of everybody. Um, I mean, that's the idea, really. It's, there's never been a period in history where one, you know, one person gets everything oh. that, um, you there? Oh, perfect, perfect. It like glitched for a second. Yeah, lost you for um, a second, but now we're oh, back. Oh, no worries. Yeah. Okay, Sweet. just repeat that last sentence. Yeah, but uh, kind of, you know, what I was saying was politics is a, it's, it's a dynamic thing and it requires people of different, different viewpoints and different experiences and different knowledge bases to come together to try and do something for the common good of everybody. It's messy and it's complicated. And I really resonate with what you said about, um, 
you know, because I've been in that situation too, where I say something that I don't think is controversial, or at least maybe it's controversial to the far, far end of one political spectrum. Um, and it's, I, I think it's, you know, these last couple of years has really kind of brought out the wolves in that sense where, and you know, there's a lot of factors in, in, in why that is, but people are very, uh, very guarded about their opinions, specifically how it relates to economics and markets. And, you know, I mean, you and I both know that the word capitalism, like just that word, is such a, uh, it's, it, it, it brings, it's, it's like has all these connotations now with people. Right. I literally avoid the word now. Like I, I right. refuse to work, use the word capitalism when I'm discussing economics with anybody. I, mm-hmm. I've substituted it fully for, for markets. <laughs> right. Right. Um, right. Right. And, and not only, not only because I do think there might be nuances in the way that people interpret that, but I think at the end of the day, I'm also saying like, I'm, I'm not for like a bunch of powerful people going and, and hoarding as much wealth as possible and, and right. at any cost to do so, but more so the idea that when people have the ability to freely exchange with one another in an economic mm-hmm. sense, that creates good results, right? Yeah. I guess those are two different perspectives, but yeah, I mean, capitalism's a supercharged word, right? Right. For, I don't know so, what reason, but it is. So could you take us to just kind of the, um, just the essence of a market. So how would you describe it to someone who has absolutely no, um, no economic understanding? I mean, part, they participate in the market, but they don't understand really the, the history or nuance of, of the term and, and what, it, what it means. Sure, so I, I think that, you know, um, there's a lot of great introductions, um, you know, and like I've, I've been through enough economics 101 classes where I've kind of heard people explain this in different ways. And the one that always resonates the most with me is that there's a scarce amount of everything. There's a scarce supply of everything, right? And I think economics is the study of two things with that. One choice, right? How, how, which things we choose over other things in order to create better situations. And then two, interaction, right? Where there's, there's a human element to economics. And I think people separate those two things way too often but like us just exchanging with one another be it ideas uh be it labor be it products whatever Mm -hmm. it's all economic activity in one way or another right so to like to have a strong um you know anti-free market stance from my perspective is going and saying i don't want people to voluntarily exchange goods services whatever with one another right 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 um and then I can kind of get into, uh, you know, what differences there are with that as far as like, you know, I, because of that, I'm more anti-regulation, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, people initially say that's a right-wing stance. But um, one of the research papers that I did was regulation on something known as occupational licensing, right? Which mm-hmm. is like the amount of prerequisites required to get a job to do something. Right. I know. And I actually, you sent that to me and I, I, uh, it was really interesting, and you know, here's just a quote that you that I wrote down because I thought it. I thought it, uh, it. It's not said enough, and I thought that this is a really good insight. But you said occupational licensing is now a regulatory weapon used to establish unfair and inconsistent standards amongst all sorts of low-skilled occupations. As mentioned earlier, Michigan, which is where you're from, requires 49 out of 102 common lower-income occupations to be subject to a variety of occupational licensing and regulation. That, that really blew my mind, if I'm being honest. And I'm sure it's worse yeah. in California, too. 
Oh yeah, um, I think California is one of the top ranking states for it. Uh, Louisiana yeah. is is a really big one too, and the reason why I referenced that is because uh, there's a story that I kind of included that I, I you know I kept it short and sweet inside of the essay, but uh, if I could kind of you know expound it long form, um, so. Louisiana had a strict occupation, occupational licensing laws against being a florist, being a practicing mm -hmm. florist, right? Now, <laughs> um, there's a bunch of funny stuff that has to do with like the Supreme Court rulings that made that, you know, uh, permissible and things like that. But the root reason why they wanted to have occupational uh, licensing for being a florist is because Florida was kicking their ass in the flower market because they had a way better climate for it. Right. So, okay, well, if we just make it so that you have to be a Louisiana licensed florist to sell flowers, then mm -hmm. we're not going to have to compete with Florida anymore, and we can have our own kind of protectionism and regulation there. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a woman named Sandy who was low income, and she actually, uh, you know, had a skill set in, in being a florist. The problem was, is that uh, the grading system for whether or not you, you know, knew how to be a proper florist was super arbitrary, and it was actually used as a discriminatory and racist measure to keep people out of that market. Mm -hmm. And um, here's the, this is the most mind-blowing fact. The passage rate for the test to become a florist was lower than the passage rate for the Louisiana bar exam to become a lawyer. So that's how tough that's it insane. was to become a florist. Right. Um, so yeah, so and so super sad ending, but, but uh, Sandy, who the story is about, actually um, was told that she wasn't allowed to work at a grocery store. Uh, the, the literal government came in and forced the grocery store to fire her because she didn't have a license. And Jesus. she had uh, a high-risk surgery and literally couldn't afford to uh, keep the electricity on in her house. And she actually died in recovery from that surgery. Um, and obviously, I'm not saying that florist licenses killed her, but the fact right. that she wasn't employed contributed to it. Right. So, yeah, that um, that is, God, that is a crazy story. You also referenced, um, got it up here. Similar, similar to that, occupational licensing for. Um, actually so well I, let me rewind a second so kind of one thing that i took from your paper is this idea that there the regulation has created administration jobs which don't actually technically add to the labor market more they, they kind of just act as filler positions without um I, again i'm kind of an economic idiot but i kind of think of like things like the in the 1950s innovation like you could only get so many new appliances in your kitchen before right. those that stopped and then eventually all these companies have to shift to something else but you see this this sort of this need for growth to continue um and it just i you know it, it, from what i took from it it inflated these administration positions without providing anything really providing anything meaningful is that is that a sort of accurate take or yeah so um i think one of the best examples of that that i used was the healthcare market right. and again you know healthcare is a very controversial hot button issue mm -hmm. and i think the idea is that we must move to a, a single payer program in order for us to have a better healthcare system yeah. and what i draw attention to here is that the government started regulating healthcare significantly more around the New Deal era. Mm -hmm. And the result of that was the number of medical administrators, like you said, which are basically paper pushers for regulation, right. for records, for things like that, totally. increased 
27 times in the same amount of time that the number of practicing physicians doubled, right? Right. So it's it's outpacing the growth of doctors rate by 14 times. That's a massive amount and the costs associated with it. I mean, those are salaries you're paying and decent, right. you know, middle income salaries. Think about what kind of cost it's adding on healthcare. And that's mostly a regulatory issue, right? So mm-hmm. there's that secondary effect that maybe some people aren't thinking about when you consider, you know, let's step in and let's fix the healthcare market. And then your right. result is, is something like that, which is going to obviously increase the cost. Do you think having a blended system like... Um... Because I, I sort of, how I, how I look at it is, it would be great if, and I think a lot of the, the healthcare issue relates specifically to options within certain tax brackets. Um, like I know in California, it's, it's really hard to get healthcare if you are, like you have to be so poor that you can get, you can get free healthcare. But if you're still really, really, really poor, but just not within the lowest tier, you can't. Um, So do you think like a blended system or something that like there is a government option as well as the option to pursue it in the free market? Like, what do you think might be a good, a good way to, to go about solving this problem from like a realistic standpoint? So I think this is a great segue into a couple of things, and I'm going to touch on healthcare and then kind of move into, you know, uh, a little bit education and the welfare totally. state at large, if that's, if that's cool with you. I'm all about um, it. So people, you know, have this idea that European systems have purely, you know, free healthcare all around, and it's so much better than the American system, and it's not totally incorrect. Um, mm-hmm. But we need to tread lightly when we're talking about, like, a regulated healthcare market and a subsidized healthcare market because right. you can we keep pay for the free, subsidies. Exactly. So you can like keep free market functions intact intact while still having funding. And this is kind of the model that Sweden has for most of their social programs is the government is footing the bill, but there's not a whole lot of red tape. Right. Mm-hmm. They're not saying this is how you have to do it. You can't do it this way. You have to do it the government's way. It's right. more so here's some funding. Go compete with one another. And, you know, uh, a winner is going to end up in a better position because of it. Right. So I'm going to I'm going to take that to into school of choice for a second. Mm-hmm. Right. And talk about uh, same concept. Right. And, and real quick, of, before, you, before you do that, I, I always like to make the note that a country like Sweden is like 3 million people, and it's like 98% Swedish people. So those types of large-scale social programs are inherently going to be much easier to implement when there's sort of a shared national culture. Uh, I mean, you see that all in, in all those Nordic countries that constantly get referenced. People kind of tend, in my opinion, they tend to forget the, uh, the fact that it's a fairly homogenous society in that sense. But right. Anyway, and, yeah. and it does kind of drive me crazy, too, when people say that all of those countries are, are socialist countries, because I don't think that's an they're accurate not. description of what they are. I think they're, they're very much just a neoliberal society, which is, you know, not too many steps away from what America was probably 30, 40 years ago. I'd say we mm-hmm. moved into a different system that I, I'm reluctant to label. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that was essentially the model is we had social programs and they worked pretty well and we still let the free market do its thing. But Sweden does have that advantage of their you know, they're more homogenous in their culture and, and their demographics, and they're also healthier, right? Um, healthier. People don't like having that conversation is that America is incredibly unhealthy and incredibly overweight, and that is going to bog down a free system. Like, it's just, right. you know. Um, Absolutely. But uh, 
similar to to their healthcare system, their schooling system works in a similar way where they're footing the bill, but they're kind of letting the free market at work. And I think the right and the left can agree that our healthcare, or not our healthcare, our education system is really bogged down and having a lot of issues, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, literacy rates in, in urban areas are dropping at an exponential rate. Well, how is one of the richest, most prosperous countries in the world struggling to uh, educate people? Right. And I think there's, you know, I think there's a racist component there. Absolutely. Um, actually, the public education has is historically racist, right? I mean, we can draw right. that to the origins of public education all the way to now that there is a lot of racist undertones, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, minimally. But, you know, I think if we move to a system where the schools have to compete for funding, and they have mm -hmm. to compete for students, and students can have the mobility to go which, to whichever school that they want, that that is going to force those again free market components of allowing people to actually have to compete with one another create a better product educate people better create demand for what they're doing but still have the ability to you know pay for those things for people that can't necessarily pay for themselves a fully private school system obviously wouldn't work because that would right. totally you know undermine people that can't afford such you know things but well, the ability also, to they're accountable sorry, to they're it's more accountable to the parents, which I think is a, a huge factor. I'm, I'm reading this book right now because I'm going into education and uh, I'm reading this book called The Cult of Smart. And it's written by a dude who is very, um, I think he's, he's a professor at Brown University uh, in education, very, le very left-leaning, uh, like, most, like most people in, in education are, but he's making right. the case essentially that what what we really need is to be more scientific about first of all the heritability of intelligence so we kind of treat um and like no child left behind did this and you know that was a bipartisan that was democrat and republicans that that pushed that through and this idea that that uh everyone deserves a college education is really not i mean and he talks about sweden a lot you know kids in sweden aren't reading at parents don't care if their kids can't read by the age of three because that's not they know that they will eventually and they're getting a much more you know when you're that when you're that young what you need to be doing is developing social skills learning how to interact with others that's a crucial time and we sort of box in every kid pretending that they are going to be the next astronaut the next engineer when the reality is right. is that very few people have that skill set and you, you see it very early on. He was saying that um, uh, there's like a basically like a 90% correlation between kids who struggle in math at three years old, basic math, and those same kids struggling 12, 13 years later adjusted for socioeconomic status. And, and so what he's saying is like, look, we need to go into poor schools and say, hey, what, what you have an opportunity to do, you know, I'm a plumber. I'm an electrician. Um, these are skills that are always going to exist, are always going to be needed. And what better way to invigorate a poor community than with skills that you can use in your in that poor community, rather than say, oh, you know, you better graduate so you can go get a you know get a degree. And some because the reality is the those kids have a much more um, immediate concern if they're not already going right. to drop out to just go get a job wherever, you know? 
No, absolutely. And I, th I think you're really, you know, hurting people by trying to box them into that. Not everybody, you're right. right. Not everybody's meant for a college education. And I think you're actually delaying their ability to, you know, make decent money in the world by, by forcing that on them. Yeah. Um, and, you know, uh, so Corey DeAngelis, who's a, uh, a scholar with, with the Reason Foundation. Yeah. So, you know, uh, he, he's very pro school choice and his entire proposal is we should move to an education universal basic income. Hmm. where families get $10,000 a year per student and you go to whatever school that you want, right? Interesting, um, yeah. So money isn't as much of an issue and the free market is still at work at, you know, it, it, people might be uh, deficient in, in math skills. So, uh, hmm. you know, it, maybe at an earlier age, parents can start paying for an education that's more catered to whatever it is else that they're good at. And, right. you know, at the same time, maybe, maybe kids find out they're really passionate about engineering and physics at an early age, which I'll admit that I don't think there's a whole lot of those, but maybe there right. are. And you totally. can start catering to that at an early age because, mm -hmm. you know, brains are sponges in your adolescence and they can really pick up a lot of amazing things and skill sets at a very yeah. early start. But the, the point is that you have to start early on it, you know? Totally. Um, so, and I, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were going into education, but like, yeah. do you know well, which area so you're initially, like going into? Well, what I wanted to do was, I'm getting my, I'm actually, I'm graduating in May with, an, with my undergraduate degree in English. Um, and what I've, what I've wanted to do for most of my life is be an English teacher or a history teacher. Um, it's kind of this sort of large cloud of irony that I'm sort of in right now is that I have a lot of friends who are teaching in California and they're working 60 hours a week and the pay is terrible. And um, frankly, the politics, the, the state politics in social science curriculum is something that I have a lot of issues with. And so what I'm doing is graduating and then I'm going into education technology. So I'm pivoting more towards um, wanting to work at like an education technology company wanting to learn how to develop education-based apps and things like that. Because, I mean, again, that, to me, that realization that, well, I think maybe the free market is the solution in this, in this scenario. And, and I go back to thinking, like, just throughout my own school career, I have learned more through looking up things on YouTube and yep. finding content of people who might not even be in education and, and you see that teachers do that all the time, where they abdicate their responsibilities to, um, to someone else, essentially. And, you know, for me, it's like I'm a more visual kinesthetic learner. And I never really, I never really, school never really worked for me in a lot of ways. So I'm starting a graduate program in the fall in education technology. And, and that's, uh, that's where I'm going. Hopefully, that's awesome. I want to teach. I do want to teach in a classroom. I do obviously think that's valuable, but I'm sort of trying to cover my own ass a little bit here and, and see what else is going on and take that into consideration too. Well, you could be kind of seeing where the, the education market's going in that sense too, because the same yeah. sentiment, even at a college level, right? Like my mm -hmm. computer can give me a better lesson on a topic that I'm passionate about than right. perhaps my graduate teacher can, you know? Totally. And that's not to discredit my graduate teacher's brilliance by any mean, uh, mm -hmm. but more so the fact that the internet is literally an endless source of information. Right. And 
No, and it can start simple in an engaging way. Like Kurzgesagt is a, is a great example of a YouTube channel that like, you know, you can put that on for an eight-year-old. And for the most part, right. they could probably follow it long because it's actually, there's so much effort into like making it visual and explaining it and stuff. And then like, totally. you know, I started with that. And like a few weeks later, I was on like a, like astrophysics bench as a result of yeah. that and actually looking at like actual astrophysics stuff on right. the internet and i'm like yeah. this is stuff this is information that was probably only accessible to regular people like you know as of this most recent decade and previously right. you did have to go through a formal education to get that resource but now totally it's it's getting disbalanced it's and, you opened know, up value. yeah and there's a lot of right. and you know there's something again he talks about in this book and um and there's, there's been a few like John Ogbu, who's like a pretty famous educate, educating or educator, sorry, um, has talked about just the, the fact that we don't, you know, and you talked about this in your paper, there are certain professions that you should, requ you should require certain licenses and certain skills and there's, they were held to a very high standard. And it's, it's not easy to become a teacher, but they don't screen for things that are never really considered in the teaching environment are the teacher themselves who could be absolutely terrible. I've had, I've had teachers that have punched out my willingness to want to learn something based on just 100%. how they, and, and that is something that never gets taken into consideration um, in my eyes. And then I've had teachers that inspire me to want to learn. But like you said, being able to explore something on your own without you know, if a teacher says, hey, you know, do this assignment or else, and they're not interested in what it is they're teaching, why would you want to do that assignment? What, what, there's, there's a disconnect between our basic psychology and the role that this institution is supposed to play. Um, and I think a lot of it is protected by the implications of saying, okay, well, you know, maybe, we, maybe you have to be this type of person to do this type of job in this instance. And also the, the need for teachers, because we always need teachers. So, I don't know. Right. Framing, I think, is an important part, too. Um, I nearly uh, flunked out of my pre-calculus class in high school. I struggled mm -hmm. with it a lot. My teacher was not only not inspiring, but he just was bad at teaching, honestly. Right. And he just wasn't yeah. a very kind person, right? And then I needed to take calculus for... Uh, for graduate school applications to economic schools because things get very very math based as you kind of mm -hmm. climb up the ladder with with the study of econ and i just framed it in a way where i was first of all my teacher was much better she was great and she was passionate about the subject and she explained things clearly and i was also there for a higher purpose i wasn't there to learn calculus i was there to learn calculus so i could get into grad school right, right. and just even that little bit of framing caused me to take so much more initiative when it came to learning math which is a subject that i'm not usually very stoked to be learning in the first totally. place you know right um well, to, to and be able to like, see the math within the social aspect of economics too is so interesting you know you someone can really anyway i'll let you take that no 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 i i, I want to hear you uh, unpack that well, thought a little I, bit I, I was i was gonna say that um math to me has always been a very i'm a much more word oriented person so math to me has always been very abstract and just sort of like there's one right answer and this is how you find it and it's very process driven um, but, you know, I'm interested in economics, even though I don't know that much about it, because math can explain social phenomenon, which is essentially what economics is. And so it takes on a different, again, the framing of it takes on a different meaning. Like I love taking statistics because statistics is the study of human behavior more in, in some ways, you know, 
Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because there's, I think, different schools of economic thought that have been developed based off of their math emphasis, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, like uh, back in the early 1900s, uh, one of the, the leading schools of thought at the time was what's referred to as the Austrian school. And it's mm -hmm. not it's not the economics of Austria. It's it's literally there's a bunch of dudes in Austria that developed, you know, this new the form theory. of economic thought. Mm -hmm. Right. And their entire uh, perception initially is very uh, human behavior, psychology, uh, you know, even you could even say anthropology based, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's just a set of logical deductions. Um, like they were the ones that invented this idea of marginal utility, which I'll explain that because I know that's, you know, kind of jargon to some people. Right. But literally the simple idea that like you're in an all you can eat buffet and you can eat as much food as you want and you're a big pizza fan. So you're probably just going to eat pizza the entire time at this free buffet right and the first pizza that you eat is going to be great and then there's literally going to get to a point where you don't want to eat anymore you're full right mm -hmm. and like that's a super basic concept if we think about it but it's human behavior based where like your subjective value for the exact same thing is decreasing with each additional unit that you get right right that's yeah, a very absolutely. human behavior based abstraction right like totally just literally thinking out like, okay, how would a regular person behave in this situation? Right. Um, but then, you know, we've also moved, there's different schools of thought that promote, you know, like uh, very intense mathematical models and talk about behavioral economics. And they try to model human behavior using like all these aggregate, you know, charts and data sets that they get and try to make sense out of those. And those two schools of thought are at odds because one is saying, here's your base things on how humans act and we're going to mm -hmm. build upon that. And other ones are saying, let's take these large data sets and try to abstract human behavior out of them. Right. Right. Those, those clash naturally. Right. And there's some mm -hmm. debate that happens there as a result. Um, but it's interesting because I feel like both are right and not necessarily every, you know, every economist wants to make that stance because that means right. my side has to lose or whatever. Totally. totally. But, I think that there's definitely benefit to looking at it from both perspectives. And I think that, um, again, it's a politicization thing, right? The Austrian school, for whatever reason, is now getting attached to right-wing people and, and, you know, econometrics and calculus-based economics is now a left-wing thing. And I'm like, hmm. these things can exist in, in harmony with one another. It's, Right, because it's not like, you know, uh, people in science that there's disagreements in climate change and physics and things like that. Totally. It's not like we're politicizing them where it's like, oh, if you believe in string theory, you must be a Republican, <laughs> right? That's yeah. not how we think about well, it. Well, and, and it's, it, I mean, you can make the analogy of like the, the, the weatherman, you know, he has to report on trends that are unpredictable, but are still somewhat predictable. I mean, I guess you could say like macroeconomics on some level is so complex that all you can do is essentially look at trends with the added context of data to, to make broad assumptions or, or you know very specific assumptions about like certain human behaviors. But it, to me, it seems like they kind of rely on each other. I'd imagine that like with any field, once you become sort of pigeonholed in one sort of area and that becomes your expertise, and I mean, this we could talk about the way that academia works too in this sense, but, um, you're incentivized not to step outside of that box in a way. No, absolutely. Economics is 100%, um, probably even more than, than a lot of sciences. It's mm -hmm. expected that you kind of stay in that lane and your perception, you know, is the one that you kind of stick with and other people are, you know, antithetical to whatever your 
worldview is when it comes yeah. to economics. Yeah. And again, like, I get it, you know, humans, first of all, humans are tribal, and second of all, humans always want to be right, so all that counteracting data can be something you want to either shy away from or, you know, make an enemy out of, but totally. I don't think that's necessary, because I think mm -hmm. that, you know, like, um, a lot of the Austrian guys uh, bash on a dude named John Maynard Keynes, uh, Keynesian mm -hmm. economics, right? Um, I've, and heard, I've heard that. His term, whole yeah. thing, well, his whole idea that he, you know, kind of abstracted was if the economy is doing bad, just give people stimulus and they're going to start spending and the economy will start doing better. And you might have to go into some debt in order to make that happen because you're just giving people money out of nowhere, but that will hopefully offset the fact that you stay in a recession for longer, right? Right. Um, but you can, that get, can backfire too, you know? Um, I mean, so, I and that's, that's about, what the Austrians say, yeah. is that they'll say that doing that causes what they refer to as malinvestment, where money's not going to the right places and you don't see those bubbles popping in that malinvestment until the next recession. It's the thing that causes about, the next recession. I was just learning about the, uh, the, re the, the situation that India was in a few years ago where they reset their, not reset their currency, but they voided. Basically, I mean, the, the Reader's Digest version is older generations in India, it's mostly a cash-based society. They would basically keep their money under the pillow and they wouldn't spend it. And a lot of these older people had certain bills that they weren't circulating anymore, but they still had value. Um, and India is a huge country, so millions of people were doing this. And the Indian government was going, oh shit, you know, we have to collect taxes on this. So they gave people a certain amount of time for them to turn that money in to be, to, to be yeah, taken by the government, taxed, and then given back in the form of new currency. And it was That's like very a, interesting. a complete nightmare. People, you know, 100,000 people died or something crazy like that. And there were lines just up to ATMs for, for like a two-week wait just to get to an ATM to, to cash your, your old money in because it was now void. Right. And I, could, I guess I could see that as being like a, potenti a potentiality for something like, is it Keynesian economics? Is that how you pronounce yeah. it? Yep. Keynesian. Yeah, something yep. like that. So, you know, and monetary economics is a specialty of mine, but it also can get really hard to follow. So I'm going to, you yeah. know, do my best to not get too wonky with this stuff. Yeah, totally. But the Indian, Indian government considers cryptocurrency a threat for similar reasons, right? Because mm -hmm. it shakes their already unstable monetary system and they're afraid of it. So they are doing their best to outlaw it, which is not going to go well for them. I don't know how you outlaw a set of thousands of decentralized online currencies. Um, right. I think that's going to they're going to find that to be very difficult but mm -hmm. it's just interesting because i think it's only a matter of time before you know governments and more established economies are going to have to make some very careful considerations because bitcoin and its growth is a bet against the dollar right. it is saying this current monetary system that we have is not working and it's mm -hmm. making people disadvantaged and we're going to move to a better monetary system and this is what that's going to be that's yeah. that's the you know, the general idea of why Bitcoin is something that has value, because otherwise right. it's literally just code. Right. right. Um, and governments don't care about that now. But mm -hmm. if you hit, you know, a $3 trillion market cap and you have 1.5 billion people using Bitcoin, governments are going right. to get scared because that Absolutely. means the American dollar looks weak. That means the, the euro looks weak, et cetera. So, right. um, you know, that's, that's going to create a lot of interesting controversy over the next decade or so. Yeah, I, uh, I, I used to work with a guy <clears throat> back in like 2014, and he was one of the first people to buy Bitcoin. And he was like, 
I was, I was a line cook. And so, you know, I was around, I was working with a lot of crazy people because that's just the type, you know, <laughs> crazy people or work as line cooks. And, <laughs> and he was, uh, he was like one of the first people to get in on the Bitcoin thing. And he was trying to get me in on it. He's like, dude, you got to buy Bitcoin. Like, you know, and he, I totally regret it now, but he's, I'm sure have, I haven't, I've lost touch with him, but I'm sure he is rolling in it now. And ju just this last, just this last, uh, last six months, I've started, I've started getting involved in cryptocurrency. And um, the way I look at it is why, why wouldn't it continue to climb? There's no, there's no fed, you know, what, what would inhibit it from continuing to raise in value? So right now, uh, the only thing that would uh, inhibit it is faith, right? And right. people of, you know, economists everywhere, I think, are discrediting it because of the fact that um, it's, I'm trying to, they're treating it like a stock, right? People are mm -hmm. acting like, oh, it's a Bitcoin bubble and it's overemphasis and, and this when there's, but people are forgetting, right? We invest in stocks because we think a company is going to do well and that's going to generate a return. We do not invest in cryptocurrencies for those same. No, some people are. Totally. Some people are investing into crypto because they want to make a quick buck or whatever, and they're not really mm -hmm. thinking of the abstract of it. But at the end of the day, I think its growth is more so because of the fact that when our financial system starts to look rocky, people mm -hmm. are going to take money out of the current financial system and the stock market and throw it into crypto because crypto doesn't look rocky. Right. And there's going to, I think a bubble uh, is occurring with Bitcoin right now. And again, mm -hmm. uh, it's, I think it's more so a faith bubble, right? Like it's going to, it's crossed the 50,000 threshold. That's great. I think we're due for a correction just because there's a lot of people putting a lot of effort into scaring people out of Bitcoin at this point Absolutely. because they're seeing how, right? Tesla's adding it to its balance sheet. Apple's right. adding it to its balance sheet. Walmart's at, these are companies that are usually pretty wise with their money. I don't think they'd be buying a billion dollars of bullshit if they didn't think it was going to have value in the future. Absolutely. And I think that's the reason why they're accepting it as a currency now, right? Do you um, think how, how much of Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency do you think the value because uh, yeah, I think uh, what, what you said, it is a bet against the dollar. I, I do think, and I've had conversations with people who are involved in the, you know, very involved with cryptocurrency. And, you know, you know, people who are involved with cryptocurrency are very, you know, that's, it's kind of like, they're like vegans. It's like all they can talk about. Um, but they, they say that a lot of it, you know, friends of mine who are into it say that really the technology too, behind a lot of these cryptocurrencies is a, uh, almost like a product itself can be used for so many different things like the blockchain. I've heard talk about like blockchain voting systems and things like that. So how much do you think different technologies popping up within the cryptocurrency sphere kind of relates to the uh, value of cryptocurrency as a whole? Yeah, so I think blockchain is incredibly useful. And I think the ability to document things from an independent source and have all of those types of verifications that go along with it is great. Um, I think, and, you know, um, voting's a great example of that. I also think that blockchain uh, is going to be one of the only ways that we're going to have to go about encrypting things eventually, because I think quantum computing, as that develops, is going to eventually pose threat to the way that we have security for everything, right? Um, right. And not to get into a, you know, nerdy conversation about that, but we're at a point where we can de develop computers that can crunch massive amounts of math calculations and algorithms at once and that being so advanced would threaten like a, a you know a 10 digit or 15 or 20 digit password right because right. it could crunch through all of that until it finds the right password super quickly yeah. 
and it's not it's and scary to think about it is scary to think about but it's not <laughs> it's not a binary system it's not it's not working through and again i i don't know you probably know more about quantum computing than i do um but from what i understand of it it's it's kind of confusing because it gets down to like the, the atomic level more or less or like the the subatomic level but um you know, it, it basically can look at all of the possibilities of, let's say, you know, okay, what's your five-digit code? Okay, there's a million possibilities for what a five-digit password could be on someone's computer, but a quantum computer can essentially look at all combinations of those simultaneously-ish? Yes, that's pretty much it. So the best way to describe it is that, um, you know, quant quantum computing, as you add bits to it, is mm -hmm. is exponentially increasing its computing power right hmm. so as we figure out how to actually make a quantum computer work which is at the atomic level and that's the tough part you're right. getting more and more computing possibilities at once a huge bang for your buck as far as space it takes up and the amount of processing power it can achieve and that's exactly what it is so people are thinking okay if we get to that point then like is our like banking security going to just be a giant race for who can make the best quantum encrypted thing and as soon as somebody makes another stronger quantum computer that becomes threatened right. and people's proposed solution to that is blockchain because of the fact that okay we can verify that this is coming from the same person but have all of this independent encryption that allows it that a quantum computer couldn't figure that out right gotcha. yeah, um, yeah. so that's that's kind of where that that extra value component is and i don't know you know i can't say that this is something we'll be seeing soon by any means. Right. This is probably, we're probably talking 20 years down the line. So there's a whole lot of speculation that, that can happen with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the combination of blockchain and displacing the dollar and having an alternative way to go and the fact that you can make money off of it presently are all great things um, yeah. that are going to continue, you know, Bitcoin's uh, claim to fame here. Mm -hmm. And again, I mean, so this is a, a fact that I learned the other day is that mm -hmm. Bitcoin currently is the same number of users as the internet did in 1997, Damn. except the uh, adoption rate is outpacing the internet. So uh, Bitcoin's supposed to reach a billion users within the next four to five years. Yeah. Well, from 1997, it took the internet until 2005 to hit a billion users. Right. So that's and just that something with, to consider. That was with the dot-com bubble too in there too. Yeah. So the, and that's why people are projecting a Bitcoin bubble is the yeah. amount of liquidity and the amount of users that are flooding into it is overvaluing it presently. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's, you know, uh, overvalued forever, but right now there might be a little too many people getting too excited about the prospect. And that's something, totally. you know, I have, I have holdings in a bunch of Bitcoin and crypto, uh, but I'm watching all of it carefully because yeah. it's, everything's looking really good right now. And last time people were saying, wow, this is great. Everybody's going to get rich. The dot-com bubble happened. So yep. when it looks too, <laughs> when it looks too good, yeah, it might probably, probably won't last. Um, so yeah, I wanted you, you, wanted to talk about the wel welfare system and the welfare, the welfare state a little bit. And I would love to get into that with you because I've recently been kind of digging into like Thomas Sowell a little bit. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Very. Uh, yeah. And just trying to get a more under, just kind of a more nuanced understanding of the, uh, the cause and effect of certain things in the welfare. Cause, cause people, you know, and again, a lot of my, a, a lot of, understandably so, and I was for a long time, it's like, well, you know, why not universal basic income? Why not this? Why, like, what, why can't I just have money in my pocket if I'm someone who works a, 
kind of menial job and um, and I think very little attention has been paid to the consequences of these things and and it's not it's not uh, politically advantageous in a lot of ways to be the person in the room that goes yeah actually you know here's why here's why that is not necessarily a good idea yeah so this is a big topic and i might talk mm -hmm. at length for a bit but i promise Please. i've had this conversation a lot of times and yeah. i'm heading uh t towards a conclusion so yeah. um so there's a few factors and and i'm going to come right out and say that i'm actually more left-wing than many of my free market uh colleagues uh mm -hmm. when it comes to welfare um yeah. Now, having said that, we're going to go and talk through a few things here. So first of all, uh, people forget that money is worthless without supply, right? You have, okay, that demand component is fed. You have money and you can go get stuff with that money. But equally as important is, is the fact that there's stuff to buy at a reasonable price. All the money in the world doesn't solve that. So that's something, you know, worth remembering is that we need to keep the monetary thing, you know, in bounds to a degree, just so that our system works properly. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing to mention with that is, um, you know, like inflation and stuff like that, right? Like if we're going to be uh, supplementing people with money, we need to be very careful about how much printing we're doing so that we don't devalue the money, right? right. So when people were like making a lot of claims, you know, with, with COVID about we need stimulus, and I completely agree, we did need stimulus at that time. Um, uh, we should have had five times the stimulus that we ended up getting with the amount that we spent, if not more. But right. um, you also have to remember that there weren't as many people working then. So what is right. that money going to get you if the, all the supply chains are broken down? So totally. there's my first. Second point is that work is a lot more important than just, you know, a means to an end for money. Work creates fulfillment and work creates value, more importantly. Mm -hmm. Your labor has an inherent value to it that's good for your community and society, right? And the paycheck that you get from that is the paycheck that you get from that, but you got to remember that you're serving your community. So when I talk about welfare state, I don't want people not having jobs. I just want people to have more access to the basic things that you need to live. Right. So, here, so now into my final two points. I am very much anti-minimum wage which makes people very upset on a pretty frequent basis, but I'll mm -hmm. explain why, but I am pro UBI. And um, Interesting. the reason why <laughs> is because minimum wage uh, creates a lot of adverse effects that UBI does not create. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, so, and I, uh, I'll try not to get too jargony with the econ stuff because a oh, lot of conservatives get, get jargony because I'll, I'll put in uh, <laughs> I'll put in show notes too that define certain things and all that. Kind oh, of that stuff would too. that would be great. Mm. So, um, a lot of conservatives make a lot of really bad arguments for minimum wage, and it clouds my argument a lot of the time, and that bothers me. And you know, it's basically like, oh, well, you know, you just should work harder, pull up by your bootstraps. The people before you weren't complaining. What's another one? Prices are going to increase, which is a secondary effect, but not a primary effect. The primary effect of minimum wage is that it increases unemployment, and that is my main concern with it. So, pretty much, if you were to take, you know, a supply and demand type thing, consider the demand people that are looking for laborers, right? And then the supply is the labor that's being provided, right? So, you know, uh, there's uh, McDonald's is looking for X number of workers at X price, and there's so many people that are willing to supply it at that price, and you reach, in theory, some form of equilibrium, and that kind of sets the wage, right? Mm -hmm. So, Minimum wage in that context is what would be considered a price floor, which means that it's setting the price and saying you can't go beneath that price, right? Mm -hmm. 
if that price floor is below that equilibrium amount, it's not going to have an effect on anything, which is actually what I'd argue our current minimum wage is the federal minimum wage, you know, of whatever it is, $7.50 an hour or $7.25 an hour. That's well below, I think, our standard equilibrium at this point. 1% of adults currently working are working at the federal minimum wage. Everybody else is above that. I mean, and even if you go and look at starting wages at McDonald's or uh, Panda Express. California minimum wage is, I think, $12.50 now. Yeah. yeah, and I mean Mich- Michigan's is I think only nine fifty, but mm-hmm. the starting wages at places like McDonald's are still thirteen fourteen dollars an hour. But I'll get into explaining um, why that price for if it goes above equilibrium, you get what would be considered a surplus of labor. Now, if you think about a surplus in, at like a Costco and you have too much of something, they're going to lower the price to try to get rid of it, right? They're, okay, right. we have too much of what people want of this item. And the only way that we're going to get rid of it is to lower the price so that more people than usual would buy it, right? Mm-hmm. But we made that illegal. You made lowering your price illegal. Mm-hmm. So that surplus of labor is really just a different word for, for increased unemployment. And, Interesting. Um, you know, there's... Uh, there's a lot of discussions to be had and, you know, there's a lot of uh, studies that go one way or, the, or another. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's because obviously life is complicated and not that one size fits all principle doesn't right. work everywhere. But totally. I would say you can still visualize that better if you take the wage arg- argument to an extreme. It becomes mm-hmm. very obvious what that's going to create if you say make the minimum wage $40 an hour. Then that unemployment right. law that we think about becomes so obvious. You're not going to mm-hmm. have everybody working at 40 bucks an hour, you're going to have some people working at 40 bucks an hour and everybody else without a job. Um, And uh, the Congressional Budget Committee uh, for this most recent minimum wage proposal said exactly that. 900,000 people were going to get a raise out of the situation and 1.5 million people were going to lose their jobs. That was the Mm. projection, right? Mm. And that's because, you know, Birmingham, Alabama is probably not going to be a place that has a $15 minimum wage anytime soon because the cost of living there is totally different than living in New York. Now, to move that conversation into UBI. Mm-hmm. UBI is not setting a price for. If I am getting $1,000 a month, I can still go and choose to sell my labor for $9 an hour if I choose to, right? right. So this creates a lot of good things, right? Um, minimum wage usually helps corporations and hurts small businesses. That's why Jeff Bezos is a supporter of minimum wage, just because he mm-hmm. knows it's going to murder his retail competition that are already struggling, and he's going to have the power to pay his workers 15 bucks an hour, right? Absolutely. Um, but UBI doesn't cause that. UBI actually gives people more leverage with their wages because they can be like, I don't need you that bad. I don't need right. you for my insurance. I don't need you to feed my family because I'm getting $1,000 a month from the Absolutely. source that I will have no matter what. So mm-hmm. you're either going to pay me what I feel like I'm worth or I'm going to walk and go somewhere else. It's one totally. great thing. Mm-hmm. Another great thing is all research on UBI so far suggests that things are spent on economically valuable causes, right? This idea that if you supply people with welfare, they're gonna go and get hooked on drugs and alcohol and not work a job to save their life is, first of all, it's, it's a really stupid perception that people have. Right. But second of all, the data shows that's not the case. People Most people hooked money. on drugs, most people who are, I, my brother is a heroin addict and he, I mean, he's, he's currently incarcerated, but the idea that he would even, um, he, he would even be cognizant enough to be aware that this is something, I mean, people who are addicted and really mentally ill have way larger, the, the scale of pro- problems in their life is unimaginable to us. And much of it, much of like the conception of the reality that you and I live in is kind of, sadly, it's, it's kind of taken from them. Um, so I agree that like, even, even throughout, the, throughout COVID, 
you know, I'm a bartender. I've worked last year, I worked four and a half months kind of on and off. And the money that I was getting, I was reinvesting that. I was putting that into things that are valuable for me. I was thinking of it as I don't know what the next year is going to look like. So I want to have, you know, I, I want to have support myself as much as I can. But um, yeah, I think that I think that also too, UBI gives people who, you know, I think that, you know, and you and I can relate to this since we're, we're both musicians, but it gives it, it gives artists a little bit more of a cushion to actually pursue meaningful things in society. Absolutely. And that actually really matters. People, and again, part, and I'm, I'm more of a center left center, you know, I, some of my, some of the issues I go sort of center right on, but like, we need to get back to create, we need to be able to have cre people creating valuable art um, because <laughs> we're kind of seeing the same thing on a large scale with the music industry where uh, just like Jeff Bezos is supporting a higher minimum wage because it's going to destroy the rest of his competition. You see huge, huge, small bands crushed and those who can support themselves to produce content, content, content are doing fine. And it's right. creating, creating just a, the hierarchy now is the top of it is just kind of full of, of bullshit in, in my opinion. And I think the creative entrepreneurship is the future. Like it Absolutely. literally, because as we're automating a bunch of jobs away one thing that algorithms and ai cannot do is be creative there, yep. uh, there's there's something inherently human about art and creativity that speaks to us and every single time ai has attempted that it has been a cold and sterile and and dismal kind of attempt right mm -hmm. um so i think ubi would be great in aiding that and just entrepreneurship in general right if you had an extra thousand bucks a month to invest or to put towards your business or things or to, like or to that. risk yeah to say okay yeah. you know what like i like most people i don't know what the statistic is now but um i was reading something like 45 50 percent of americans don't have a thousand dollars in their savings account and it's like that that's that me is that's crazy because you know most of my life that's been me and I have been very Same. lucky where, where my car breaks down, but I also, I don't happen to break my leg in the same month, you know, because if that happened to me, I would be royally, I'd be fucked. I don't know what I would do. You know, I would like, it would be, I'd have to get help from family and I don't know how well my, you know, what family member I'd have to ask or what they're going through. And it was, right. it would just be a nightmare. And so many people are dealing with that or with their kids and, yeah, it's it's just crazy. Something's not working. Um, and and before moving on, because I mm -hmm. think that there's a, a really great uh, jumping off point from there into kind of income inequality in general, uh, which yeah. is something most people don't understand. And again, I'm on your, uh, you know, every the left side with income inequality. It's a huge issue, right. and I'll address it in a second. But uh, just to sell UBI a little bit more, I think there's two other mm -hmm. things that it does better than our current welfare system. Um, one is, you know, you were referencing previously an issue where you have to be so poor to qualify for some kind of health healthcare benefits. And even though some people are poor, poor, they still are making enough money to, you know, yeah. have, or, you know, be expected to pay for their own healthcare. The welfare state is a similar thing where as soon as you're making $1 more than, than what would be considered appropriate for your situation, you get all your benefits taken away and that's devastating for people. Mm -hmm. And I think UBI gets rid of that which is great because then it creates an incentive to get to work and improve your situation instead of a fear that you're going to lose benefits, which, you right. know, I think a lot of people who just, you know, suffered through unemployment um, this past uh, COVID pandemic can, 
you know, agree with that, that if, if they had a thousand dollars a month, that wouldn't be as scary to maybe hop off of unemployment because, you know, uh, finding a job that could get shut down at any point when you're collecting right. money from unemployment is a whole, you know, there's a risk factor there that you I'm don't the want to have to take. I'm the example. Absolutely. I mean, my, yeah. I'm waiting, my restaurant's supposed to go back to, I'm supposed to go back to work next month. And, you know, for the last two months I've been getting, well, every, every, I mean, basically getting like $600 a week, which isn't, right. isn't great, but I'm in school full time. So if I were to go and, and start working, if I were to go and get a job in a, in a grocery store three days a week, making minimum, making, you know, minimum wage or whatever during the weekend, I would be making significantly less money than I would by just collecting the insurance benefits that I'm mm-hmm. collecting. So there's no incentive for right. me to. Um, Same thing. Um, you know, I, I lost my job uh, that was at school. I was, I was working a, a school job and, and that when COVID happened, obviously I lost that job pretty quickly. Um, and same thing. I mean, I, I signed up for unemployment because I, I lost my job due to shutdowns. And then I decided to instead take the risk to go work an internship in Texas. But that was a scary situation to be like, okay, I'm going to give up all this great free money that's giving me a nice cushion during this pandemic and go take a massive pay cut to move across the country to go take a risk on a job. Right. right. And in hindsight, that worked out well for me and I'm happy that I did it. But like most people would not be considering that in, in the situation just because of how risky and, and dangerous everything is given the recession. There's a lot of uncertainty right. and right. it could have taken a lockdown in Texas for me to be in the same situation I was with school. And then I'd be out of state so I couldn't qualify for unemployment again. Totally. You know? Yeah, um, man. No, I, I definitely think the, the and, and also UBI saves money. If we replaced yeah. our entire welfare state with a UBI, it'd save us about a trillion dollars. So crazy <laughs> why not yeah right it's yeah i i don't see i i think the the pros for a ubi greatly outweigh the cons and i think it would encourage people to to work and be entrepreneurs and i think that we don't have enough of so that. are you a, are you a yang supporter i was a fan of his yes yeah. um him, like him and tulsi were my two favorites um in the democratic primary so it's sad that they you know didn't really even come close yeah, to they got to the finish line. they got uh just uh what MSNBC and CNN and all the, uh, just leave it like misspelling Andrew Yang's name. Uh, it, it's honestly, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. The, uh, the disinformation campaign that they ran against both of them, leaving them off the graphics. It's, uh, it's, yeah, I mean, very, it's it, it, yeah, it was a very it's, big it's red very pill standard. moment for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we already saw how they treated Bernie, not just this election, but last election, too. Right. I mean, they, they definitely have their establishment babies. And if you're not one of those establishment babies, they won't have nothing to do with you, um, which is really unfortunate. Um, but yeah, the I guess the, you know, kind of the closing conversation we can have here, which I'm sure will take up still a decent amount of time, is yeah. is talking about people not having savings, right? And yeah. I think that is a direct result of income inequality, which is a massive problem in the United States. And I hate the mm-hmm. fact that um, there's this idea that people aren't willing to acknowledge the fact that there is a huge disparity in the way capital is moving in the United right. States. Um, yeah. And again, like, you know, these are things I can only kind of whisper amongst like free market circles, but it's true. Mm-hmm. But totally I attribute true. it to something different than capitalism bad and, you know, rich man bad. I don't mm-hmm. really think that's the situation. I think what's happening is monetary policy, which is, mm-hmm. you know, printing money, rapid expansion of the monetary base. Because um, mm-hmm. I sent you, you know, this, that website, the, the WTF happened in 1971. And mm-hmm. what happened in 1971 is that we abandoned the gold standard and we had no check for how much money we were printing and throwing into the market. 
Right. And the result of that is that, uh, you know, m first of all, money is getting devalued over time at a rapid rate, um, mm -hmm. uh, a much faster rate than it previously was. But the important thing to remember here is that that's a very advantageous situation if you already have money. Mm -hmm. And that's a very disadvantaged uh, situation if you don't. And the reason why is because as money is getting printed and you have to go into debt because you're in a recession, because, and you know, uh, we have tools for, for helping smooth out recessions a little bit. And one of those mm -hmm. is expanding the monetary base, lowering interest rates, making money cheap. Mm -hmm. Oh, great, great. Money's cheap and the people that needed it really bad have it now, but at a price, which is a price of inflation and a price of debt. Then the recession's over and you're back into you know, a more stable economic period. The people that had to go into debt during the recession are now clawing their way back to normalcy. And they better hope that they claw their way back to normalcy before that next recession hits. Right. On the flip side of it, all the people that didn't have to go into debt are really enjoying the fact that money is as fluid as it is and they get to invest in new businesses and mm -hmm. consolidate more capital and make more money and, and you know, take advantage of all the people that are spending just they to survive. They have an opportunity to, to win, the, win the game more. Exactly. And I'm not even saying that to, to make those people sound bad. That's what any decent businessman would do if they weren't right. in debt. Right? I mean, totally. they're just trying to provide services for the economy to keep things afloat. Right. Um, you know, as, as much as, you know, we enjoy hating on Bezos as a society, I would argue that Amazon kept a lot of America afloat during the pandemic mm -hmm. because there was no other way we can get, you know, literally any product imag imaginable pooped at our doorstep two days, you know, Absolutely. after we order it. And, and also, uh, I just, I, I just want to interrupt for a second and remind people that Bezos, people have this idea that he has like all of his money sitting in a checking account somewhere and he can just spend it freely. <laughs> right. But, but, but that's, I mean, it's, it's all evaluation. It's, it's not liquid cash. Um, that's not the way that no, it's all, it's literally all of his share of ownership of Amazon right. and people. So when the company gains value, he, he becomes richer. I think exactly. that's, a, that's a point that just never gets made. It drives me crazy. <laughs> the headlines uh, for COVID drove me nuts. Where it's like Jeff right. Bezos, you know, among all the people suffering, Jeff Bezos, you know, made an extra whatever, $20 billion through the pandemic. And it's like, right. he didn't make it. It's all, every single person on the face of the earth relied on Amazon to get some good to them over the mm -hmm. past year. Absolutely. And that just happened to be Jeff Bezos's business that he owns a very large portion of. Yeah. And in order for him to collect on that, he'd have to liquidate all of that, you know, right. which he's not going to do because he's trying to expand the business. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's a misconception. And I get it. I mean, we don't mm -hmm. I think that the idea of people consolidating very large amounts of capital isn't a good thing at all. For totally. the economy. But I think people need to remember that we don't live in a zero sum game either. Mm -hmm. People Getting wealthy does not make other people poor. In fact, quite the opposite. If people are actually creating services of value, it's making everybody richer in the process. Right. Um, and while I don't think that Jeff Bezos should be worth, you know, quite as much as he is, and I'd actually make the argument that it's more regulation at play than, than, you know, capitalism bad. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that there's, again, he was, Amazon was definitely doing something of value this past year. I don't think right. anybody would take a moment to argue against that. Um, and right. I don't like the idea of monopolies one bit, but mm -hmm. you know, the fact that they had the shipping services nailed and their supply chains were relatively unobstructed and there was huge demand for what they did because nobody could leave their house 
it did something positive that I would say that less developed countries didn't get to take advantage of, right? Yeah. Less developed countries either couldn't lock down or they did lock down and they did not get to live as lavishly as Americans did during the time that they were sitting at home, you know? Absolutely, yeah. It's a tough conversation and I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, being like too much of a, a shill for, for rich people and billionaires no. and stuff like that. I, I want to tread lightly. Well, when it's, it's, it's always very, but... it's very easy to recognize it's very easy to recognize the disparity. And of course, income, again, this whole thing would be a lot easier if, if people generally had, I mean, I just like to, I look at my, my grandparents' generation as a good example because they, my grandpa, um, he was the vice president of Chevron for 20 years. And mm -hmm. he, worked at, he worked his way up from a gas station attendant in the 1950s. And so the, corp, the, the corporation as it existed then was a benevolent, uh, was a benevolent thing. It helped him. It, you know, it paid for him to go to college. It really, they, they took, they saw him as someone who worked hard and they valued him as an employee. And within that system, he was able to create wealth for, um, you know, others and my family. And uh, I'm not saying I'm rich, by the way, because I'm definitely not. And I, my, my, <laughs> my extended family, they're like very type A, like, you know, you have to get everything that, you know, they're very like meritocracy driven people, but like my grandpa reinvested all that into the CSU system in California and all sorts of stuff. And right. it's kind of a, a, a different, when we have conversations with, for example, like older generations, there is this, there's the, again, this is framing for them, the corp, corporate America as it was then kind of was was a little different than we perceive it to be now um and it and it correlates to the data i mean just just looking at like the tax rates on wealthy people in the 50s they were much higher than they are now um uh, i think it was like what 35 percent or something like it was it was pretty high so it depends um, because the brackets extended further and okay. then the the taxes continue to so you know like what is it now like you make over four hundred thousand dollars that's the cutoff right so four hundred people that make four hundred grand a year and billionaires are literally paying the same tax rates right that's do you think there should be do you think you should, there should be more tax brackets um yeah i don't i don't think that could hurt um it's tough because i think that a progressive tax system is the only one that really makes sense at this point in time especially with the amount of money that our government's spending mm -hmm. And this this just is, is an important thought that I just remembered too. But we have to be careful about the idea of just taxing rich is gonna solve all of our problems. And the reason right. why is because if you took, and I, I repeat this, this uh, fact until I'm blue in the face because I think it addresses a problem that people don't want to address, mm -hmm. is if you took every single billionaire in the United States and totaled every single dollar they've made from the minute they were born to now, their entire net worth, everything they've ever owned and currently own, and taxed that and took it all away, it would have lasted five months of the government's 2020 budget. And then all your billionaires and value-creating rich people are gone, and you still have an additional, uh, what, what was the math? I just said, you know, six, seven months right. of budget that you need to spend. Yeah, yeah. So the idea that we can tax ourselves into prosperity is one that the, literally the math doesn't work out. And uh, we fill in the gaps with one debt and two printing money. And that works right. for so long because we have leverage right now. Um, you know, I think people really like, oh, the debt, the debt, the debt, especially free market people are always worried about that. And yeah, we should totally. be worried about the debt. But like, if you have debt 
on your balance sheet, but you also have the American economy on your balance sheet. The debt doesn't matter quite as much. You right, know what right. I mean? Mm-hmm. But those things need to be held within balance. You can't just print money to solve all problems, or else you're, you know, going to end up with a Weimar Republic or Venezuela. Um, totally. But and, and same thing with taxation, right? Like taxation is necessary to keep the the balance sheet in check. But we can't kid ourselves that taking, you know, eating the rich and taking all their money is going to solve some very legitimate systemic issues right now. Mm-hmm. That's just going to shift power from one place to another, and that doesn't solve anything for for right. anybody. You know? Yeah. So, and also, you know, uh, relating to that, and I know it's, I know it's late on your end, so we'll, uh, we'll tie it up here, but sounds um, good. The, uh, you know, as, as, and I, again, I'm more of a left-leaning person and I recognize that most people have it. Most people are really dealing with some, especially this year, really dealing with some hard stuff. And I think, I think the rich are the easy targets in a lot of sense. Um, and you know, it's like this, I've also, I've been reading a lot about the Soviet Union and how they dealt with, uh, and you know, I'm not saying that we're anywhere near the Soviet Union after, after, the, after the revolution, but what happened is <laughs> the, most of the rich people, and you know, I've, I've, du- I've dug into the research on this, you know, very few rich people don't just are rich without any skill sets or any most rich people are adding some sort of value and it can, you know, of course the economy can like Bezos is a great example. Um, everyone needed an Amazon everyone needed to use Amazon this year. So the, the price went up, you know, it's not like he was pushing a lever, you know, I want more, I want more money. I want more control over the world. That's not, you know, I doubt that that's what he was thinking, but you would, you immediately disappear, you know, someone like that disappears and what you're left with is, you know, one, you know, one less rich person to hate, but an entire um, thing that the country relies on just is gone, you know, and, and the way it played out in the Soviet Union was the, the farmers who knew how to farm usually had the most land and usually had the most skills and they were seen as class enemies and they were sent, they were murdered or sent off to the gulag and people who didn't have any skills were sent to farm the land that these rich farmers were farming and you know, 12 million, 13 million people died because they just didn't have, they didn't have the understanding of what it took. And so, right. you know, I think there's, well, go ahead. So, I mean, and I, I can kind of close with this to a degree mm-hmm. is that, you know, I said at the beginning, like economics is this idea of us exchanging with one another and serving our communities. And I think from the bottom to the top, there people place value on people that serve others' communities. And I think, you know, people often make the arguments where it's like, well, a rich person doesn't work a thousand, ten thousand, fifteen thousand better than one of their workers. Why do they deserve that? And I would say when you think about wages and value, don't think about the hardness of the work. I would say think about how replaceable their skill set is. Right. Absolutely. There's a reason why Elon Musk literally doesn't sleep at his house and has a bed in his office and, you know, works, you know, 18 hour days. And Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, again, I'm not trying to say that, that other people can't do that. They definitely can, but Mm -hmm. he's, he has a skill of just, he's a conductor of capital is the way that I say it. Like he's a good delegator. 
Yeah, because like, is he inventing the, the technology himself for Neuralink or Tesla or SpaceX? No, but he has all this money and he goes, okay, well, let's flow it to these people that have excellent skill sets that deserve high pay and can also make something amazing happen. Absolutely. And again, he's, he's conducting the capital to all these musicians that are serving you know, their community in their own respective ways. And that's kind of yeah. the way that I look at it. And yeah. there's definitely some systemic issues there, but I think that general idea of serving your community and you're going to get rewarded for serving your community needs mm -hmm. to be a functional part of every system or else you're mm -hmm. going to get Soviet Union scenarios. We so. can solve income inequality while also having rich people provide services that are necessary and desirable in that economy. Absolutely. Kind of what you're saying. And, yeah. yeah. And, and again, I, I don't want people to suffer by any means. And I think that we definitely have some issues that need to be addressed for people at the lower end of the spectrum. But yeah. I don't think that, you know, the not the lack of existence of rich people are going to solve any of those issues any faster. Totally. Um, so hopefully uh, this discussion kind of shed some light on the idea that yeah. economics, you know, isn't super, doesn't have to be as political and that there's a lot of gray areas that are worth entertaining. Sweet. Well, thank you so much, man, for uh, coming on and being willing to talk about this. And yeah, I feel like I learned a lot. So thank hey, you. I really appreciate yeah. uh, the invite and the fact that we've kind of had a, a line of communication for the past yeah, few man. weeks here. It's, it's been great talking it's to you. Cool. It's really cool. It. It's one of the great parts about the internet, you know? Yeah, you, you right, know, you seriously. Get to, get to stay in touch with someone that you just kind of had a chance encounter with. So um, yeah, it, yeah, it's really awesome. And, and uh, you know, thanks again. And, and really looking forward to seeing what you do with this uh, beyond just, you know, this interview. And I'm definitely going to be looking forward to watching uh, the Sweet ones man. that you release in the future. Yeah. Well, yeah. thank you very much. Of course.